from 1 Timothy chapter 6 and starting at verse 6. Of course, there is great gain in godliness combined with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world so that we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. But as for you, man of God, shun all this, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness, Fight the good fight of the faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and for which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep the commandment without spot or blame until the manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will bring about at the right time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. It is he alone who has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for those who in the present age are rich, command them not to be haughty, or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but rather on God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may hold, so that they may take hold of the life that really is life. Our second reading is from uh, 1 Corinthians and chapter 12, and beginning at verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in the one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Indeed, the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot were to say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear were to say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single, single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many members, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the members of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those members of the body that we think less honorable, 
we clothe with greater honor and our less respectable members are treated with greater respect, whereas our more respectable members do not need this. But God has so arranged the body, giving the greater honor to the inferior member, that there may be no dissension within the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together with it. If one member is honored, all rejoice together with it. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Amen. When I was a teenager and doing A-level English literature, I studied Shakespeare's Coriolanus. And uh, often when people say, you know, what's your favorite Shakespeare play, which it strangely is a kind of conversation I have from time to time, um, I've taken to answering Coriolanus because I've not come across anybody else who says the same thing. Uh, it's a fairly bloody play in many ways. I remember once going to see it at the Globe, and uh, spoiler alert here, but when Caius Martius and Alphidius have their final fight at the end, and he jumps him and takes out a knife and rips out his heart. I'm not telling you who rips out whose heart. Uh, this happened when Liz and I were stood right up by the stage, and they, the fighting men fell off the stage deliberately into the crowd and had their massive fight in the midst of the crowd. It's all very visceral. But anyway, one of the scenes which has stayed with me from that play is uh, the scene where Meninius Agrippa ends up addressing the crowd. The, the setup is that the Roman crowd have been rioting against the rulers, demanding the right to set the price of grain for themselves, rather than having to accept the price of grain that has been imposed by the Roman Senate. We're in the first century here, you understand. Um, Menenius Agrippa, then, the patrician of the city, intercepts the crowd who are about to riot, and uh, to try and head them off, he offers them a poetic metaphor to justify the social hierarchy of the rich and privileged elite setting the price of grain for the crowd. He compares the Roman state to the human body, and he says that what is going on is that the members, you know, the, the, the parts of the body, are rebelling against their own body when they riot. Well, as is usually the case with Shakespeare's historical plays, um, the play he wrote about Coriolanus was drawing on other older sources. So here's the way the first century writer Plutarch relates the story of Meninius' address to the crowd. Plutarch has Meninius say, it once happened that all the other members of a man mutinied against the stomach, which they accused as the only idle, uncontributing part of the whole body, while the rest were put to hardships and the expense of much labor to supply and minister its appetites. The stomach, however, merely ridiculed the silliness of the members, who appeared not to be aware that the stomach certainly does receive the general nourishment, but only to return it again and redistribute it amongst the rest. Such is the case, ye citizens, Meninius goes on, between you and the Senate. The councils and plans 
that are there duly digested convey and secure to all of you your proper benefit and support. And here, in a perfect classical metaphor, you have all the justification you will ever need for a top-down benefaction approach to wealth, poverty, charity, and trickle-down economics. The lesson is clear. The population should not begrudge the wealth and privilege of the elite, because without the elite, there would be no money or food for the populace. Do bankers' bonuses offend you? Well, get over it. Wise up and smell the money. And of course, the metaphor is a good one. The metaphor of the body makes sense. We can all relate to it. I mean, my stomach doesn't feel like it does an awful lot of work, and I keep feeding it, but the rest of me carries on living. I get it. And even Paul uses this metaphor in his own way in his letter to the church in Corinth, where he compares the church to a body, assuring the members that each part is of equal value to each other part, and that therefore the ear should not be envious of the eye, and so on. And whilst I like Paul's use of the body metaphor, and spiritually, I'm right in there with him, in his conviction that in Christ all are of equal value, I think there remain some uncomfortable questions with regards to how equal we all are in other, how shall I put this, less spiritual ways. I think that, for me, Paul's use of the body metaphor to assert universal spiritual equality in Christ is still rather too close to the Roman patriarchal body metaphor on which it's based. What I think Paul was trying to do in his letter to the Corinthians was to subvert this Roman concept of the empire as a body by taking over the image and applying it to the body of Christ, which is the church. And Paul's image of the church as a body is his attempt to kind of unpick the persuasive, pervasive and seductive logic of Menenius' argument. Rather than inequality being an essential characteristic of humanity, with lesser members needing the well-fed and privileged elite to secure their own survival, Paul talks of the greater honour that God gives to the inferior member, elevating the poor and the weak above the powerful and the rich. Well, so far, so revolutionary, so good. But my concern is that Paul's message has not really filtered very well down the centuries into much of what has gone on in the name of Christianity. We have a history, as Christians, of colluding with and perpetuating vast socio-economic inequalities, both within wider society and within the structures of the church itself. Too often in church life, we have taken Paul's metaphor of the body and turned it back into the one on which it was based, the Roman body metaphor. The radical vision for equality that Paul offers his readers becomes, in reality, 
just another excuse for perpetuating a patriarchal trickle-down style of economic community, where the poor are at the bottom of the pile and are dependent on the charitable giving of a wealthy elite. And whilst we can point with some justification to the evils of Christendom, and 500 years this year on from Martin Luther and the start of the Reformation, we can echo his critique of practices such as the selling of indulgences and other ways of monetizing spirituality. We also have to face the uncomfortable truth that our own traditions are far from immune from an approach to wealth and charity that is based more on defending entrenched inequality than it is on promoting radical equality. Why is it, we might wonder, that most Christian churches in the Western world are predominantly middle class? Why is it that even within churches where there is a substantial number of those whom we might term economically disadvantaged, the leadership structures tend to be dominated by those with wealth, power, and privilege? These are uncomfortable questions, not just for us here at Bloomsbury, but for the, the Western Protestant church. And they're questions that are raised for us by Paul's radical reworking of the body metaphor as he tried to take it away from the Roman ideal of a well-fed, centralised belly distributing resources to the members into a vision of fundamental equality between all members of the body. What, I wonder, would it look like for a church to be a community where the powerless, the poor and the put-upon are empowered, enriched and enabled? I do love alliteration, I'll say that again. What would it be like for a church to look like a community where the powerless, the poor and the put-upon are empowered, enriched and enabled? Well, in many ways, as a church here in central London, we're already doing exactly this. There are many who come into our building and into our wider sphere of influence because, of course, Bloomsbury is far more than those of us who gather on a Sunday morning, as you all well know. And when they come in, they find friendship and respite and care and love, and they discover the possibility of genuine transformation through their encounter with the body of Christ, which is us here in this place. And I do not want to minimise the significance of this. In her sermon last week, Ruth spoke of the importance of the small response of loving-kindness, of how sometimes giving a person a cup of water when they are thirsty and crying out for water is the most significant thing that you can do for them in that moment. And there are many of us here who over the years have given that cup of water a hundred, a thousand times over. Sometimes it literally is just a cool drink given to the person who has wandered in on a hot day seeking refreshment. Or perhaps a cup of tea or soup in the depths of winter to someone who is frozen from a night on the streets and has come in when we open at ten o'clock for a warm-up. Or sometimes it's a coach fare or an Oyster card 
or a top-up on the electric meter or a voucher for the food bank or a hot lunch on a Sunday, and I could go on. We do this, and we do it well, and I don't think we should stop. But I have a concern that for all the good that we do, such charitable giving can become a model of charity that has more in common with Menenius' metaphor than Paul's. It can become an approach to the inequalities of society where those who have are enabled to give to those who have not. And whilst that might be okay, and whilst sometimes it might be brilliant, is it transformatory? Does it genuinely raise up the person who has received the gift? Does it gift them the equality that Paul speaks of in his image of a body where all are equal? Well, to answer my own question for a moment, because it appears to be me talking, sometimes I think it can be transformatory for people. We should not underestimate the significance of getting to know a person's name of spending time with them, getting to hear their story, valuing them as a human being. Those who volunteer for the night shelter or the evening centre or who are involved in the cooking of Sunday lunch or who sit at tables over Sunday lunch with guests who haven't necessarily been here for the morning service are all contributing to something profound and important. As I was preparing this sermon on Friday, my thoughts were very much with Barbara Stanford. And I was reflecting on the stories that I've heard over the last few years of the tremendous and selfless difference that she has made over her many decades at Bloomsbury to the lives of so many people. From hospital visiting to greeting the street homeless and the vulnerable, Barbara has consistently shown the same love and respect to each person that she meets, whether they be of high rank or no rank. It is indeed a role model to aspire to. And one of the things Barbara has said to me on a number of occasions when I've been feeling a bit despondent about things and I've given her a ring is, oh, you can't win them all, you know. You can't win them all. There's a powerful scene in the musical Jesus Christ Superstar where the crowd of needy people are surrounding Jesus, calling out to him again and again for help and for healing, reaching out to try and touch him. At the end of the scene, Jesus cries out in anguish, don't push me. There's too little of me. Don't crowd me. Please don't crowd me. And then the devastating final line of despair, he cries out, Oh, heal yourselves. Well, it's true, we can't win them all. And we can't help them all. But I do believe we can win some. And I do believe that we should expect to see in all of us, every single one's really, but I do believe we should expect to see transformation and progress. As people encounter Christ through his body, the church, and are brought to a new experience of life. 
We should expect to see people released from their addictions as they come to the various anonymous groups that meet here. We should expect to see people find healing from poor mental health as they find pathways to counselling and other support through their engagement with us as a community. We should expect to see people find stability where previously chaos has held their lives in powerful grip. These are not bad things to aspire to. They are, I believe, the kind of thing Paul has in mind when he offers the image of the body of the church as a community of equality where all are equally valued. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking in more detail at what we think we're doing when we seek to offer charity as a church. Next week, we'll be looking at bearing one another's burdens. And then the week after that, we'll be looking at the idea of restorative reciprocity. But for this week, I'd like us to spend a few moments raising for ourselves the question of what exactly we think we're doing when we seek to help those who are in need. Because sometimes what we hope to achieve isn't what we actually accomplish. I'll give you an example. What do you think should be the appropriate Christian response to the person you passed this morning as you came to church sitting on the street begging for money? I assume you saw them. I did. Interestingly, I don't know if you noticed in the scrolling notices, I'd put a little picture up of somebody holding up a sign saying something like, uh, please help uh, give me money, God bless you. Uh, Mark, who will be at lunch, came up to me and he said, you see a lot of people with that, they do that to emotionally manipulate. Well, should you give them what they're asking for? After all, Jesus says in Luke's Gospel, give to everyone who begs from you. And yet, all the advice we receive from the agencies that work with those who are homeless or those who are begging is that giving cash to the person is almost always the wrong thing to do. It creates a culture of dependency. It facilitates the exploitation of the poor by gangs. It feeds destructive addictions. And it does nothing to help that person escape the cycle of disempowerment, abuse, and homelessness. It is much better to give your money to a homeless charity, or indeed to a church like Bloomsbury, I'm just saying. In fact, you may have noticed the signs that we have in the foyer, which explain that we don't give out cash for exactly this reason. We want to offer help and support that is accountable and measurable in its effect, at least at some level. Or think of it another way. A person who comes in and asks for a glass of water will, of course, get one. But the person who comes in begging for a glass of alcoholic drink will not get one. Because even if they are convinced that this is the solution to their problem, giving them what they're asking for is still the wrong thing to do. Give to everyone who begs from you, says Jesus. Well, here's the challenge for us this morning. In our thinking about how, as a church, we are to seek to do good, to offer charity and love and care to those who are in need, how can we do our best to ensure that what we offer 
is at the very minimum not actually making the recipient's life worse. I've been reading a very challenging book recently. I was reading it when I was away on holiday last week before last. It's called Toxic Charity, How Churches and Charities Hurt Those They Help and How to Reverse It. The author Robert Lupton observes that while we are very generous in charitable giving, much of that money is either wasted or actually harms the people it is targeted to help. There's a saying I often hear in the work some of us do through Bloomsbury's involvement with London citizens, and it's this. Never do for someone what they have the capacity to do for themselves, because you do that and you create dependency and destroy personal initiative. Robert Lupton continues, for all our efforts to eliminate poverty, our entitlements, our programs, our charities, we have succeeded only in creating a permanent underclass, dismantling family structures and eroding their ethic of work, and our poor continue to become poorer. He says that giving to those in need what they could be gaining from their own initiative may well be the kindest way to destroy people which is a devastating critique of well-meaning charity and a warning we all need to hear that we need to be sure that when we think we're helping, we are actually making things better and not worse. I was at a West London Citizens Leadership Team meeting this week and we were talking about the Grenfell Tower tragedy. As a church, we're in the same Citizens UK district as Grenfell Tower, and the local residents association there is one of our member institutions. So I was sat with some of those who went down on that first day after the fire to help organise the local community response. <clears throat> in the midst of the stories of horror, there were amazing stories of love and compassion and generosity. But there were also stories of people turning up with unsolicited vans of perishable food that they collected and just decided to bring down, but which could not be distributed because there was no mechanism for distribution at that point in the crisis, and it was just going to go off and there was nowhere to store it. So when they were thanked, but asked to take it away again, please some of those people started getting abusive towards those who were down there trying to coordinate the charity response because their charity wasn't being received in the way they had anticipated. And it made me wonder, for whose benefit do we give? For the benefit of the person in need or for our own benefit? A couple of weeks ago now, our regional team leader from the London Baptist Association, Phil Barnard, was preaching here for our church anniversary Sunday. And he quoted someone from one of the churches in the locality of the Grenfell Tower saying, we believe in a gospel of transformation, not of benevolence. The gospel of transformation in Christ is not about doing things to people, and it's not about doing things for people. It is about doing things with people. It is about equalizing power and wealth and status by raising up the poor and the vulnerable and enabling them to begin to do for themselves what we might otherwise just do for them. Robert Lupton again. We mean well 
Our motives are good, but we have neglected to conduct careful due diligence to determine emotional, economic, and cultural outcomes on the receiving end of our charity. Why do we miss this crucial aspect in evaluating our charitable work? Because as compassionate people, we have been evaluating our charity by the rewards we receive through service, rather than the benefits received by the served. Now please don't hear me wrong here. I do not believe that charitable giving is wrong or pointless. And I don't believe that having money is wrong. Money is not the root of all evil. That is a misquote of the passage which Howard read to us earlier. However, as Paul says in his letter to Timothy, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And those of us who want to hold lightly to our wealth and possessions and to do good with that which we have, we'll also have to learn to hold lightly to our own emotional sense of satisfaction that such good does. It might feel better to give directly to the person sitting on the street and begging than to set up a standing order with a gift aid form attached so that the church can pay its bills. But as we have seen, not only is it true that if there is no building and no staff, then the poor and vulnerable cannot come through the door here to find the transformation that we long to offer them. But it is also true that our emotionally motivated giving may end up doing more harm than it does good. So Robert Lupton suggests an oath for compassionate service. He says, Never do for the poor what they have or could have the capacity to do for themselves. Limit one-way giving to emergency situations. Strive to empower the poor through employment, lending and investing, using grants sparingly to reinforce achievements. Subordinate self-interests to the needs of those being served. Listen closely to those you seek to help, especially to what is not being said. Unspoken feelings may contain essential clues to effective service. And above all, do no harm. And here we're back at Paul's letter to Timothy again. He tells the rich and the powerful to pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love and endurance and gentleness and to do good, to be rich in good works and generous and ready to share. And as a church with money and as people with resources, we need to be sure that in our doing good, in our good works, in our generosity and our sharing, we're actually bringing the gospel of Christ into being in the lives of those we want to help. We might not be able to win them all, but we can make sure that we win some and that we do this well. I'd like to close with an introduction to a topic which I hope will be something you'll be hearing more of in the coming months. About 20 years ago, I came across a Christian-run charity in Bristol called the Bristol Debt Advice Centre. It was set up by a man called Martin, who became a friend of mine. He's actually the son of Bernard Green, 
uh, a former general secretary of the Baptist Union and someone who would have visited and known this church well in years gone by. Uh, probably some sitting here today who remember Bernard. Yeah, I'm seeing some nods. Well, Martin, his son, felt the call to do something productive for those who are living under the burden of debt. And he set up Bristol Debt Advice Centre, which does exactly what it says on the tin. It provides advice for people trapped by the spirals of debt. And I remember thinking to myself 20 years ago when I came across him and this, that one day I'd love to be part of a church that helped people. Helping people escape the spirals of oppression that hold them down, escaping the tyranny of financial indebtedness. And, you know, 20 years on, the problem has not gone away. The latest figures for UK personal debt are more depressing than ever. Did you know that people in the UK owed £1.532 trillion at the end of April 2017? It's an unimaginable number. You just can't... Kind of, I don't know really what that means. I mean, I can just about get my head around what a million pounds means. I've got no idea what 1.532 trillion means. So let's bring it down a little bit to a household level. The average total debt per household, including mortgages, is 56,750, which for somebody who's in a job and earning well doesn't sound too bad, but of course it's not spread out evenly. But then you've got levels of debt that are very high for people whose income is incredibly low. And that becomes very difficult to sustain. And according to the Office of Budget Responsibilities, March 2017 forecast, household debt is predicted to rise from the current 1.5 trillion to 2.3 trillion by 2022, the end of the current parliamentary term. Well, if we want to help the homeless, one of the things we can do is help people not become homeless in the first place. And the causes of homelessness are famously complex. They include relationship breakdown, poor mental health, and financial crisis. And it's usually when those three come together that somebody ends up stepping off the security of the housing ladder and finding that they have to try and survive in another way. And so I'm starting to wonder, what would it look like for a church to begin to address these? We can talk about supporting relationships and mental health care another time, but what about money, seeing as that's what we've been talking about this morning? Well, I'm going to stop talking now, and I'm going to ask Phil to play you a short video clip. Tens of thousands of pounds worth of debt, 20 credit cards, three personal loans, creditors phoning day and night. This is really what people are living with. The stress, the difficulty, the anxiety, feeling weighed down, burdened, guilty. It's not wrong to struggle with money. It's wrong to struggle with money silently. Community Money Advice is a project that helps uh, churches and community groups set up debt advice centres. It takes absolute beginner volunteers and trains them to be able to give face-to-face -face debt advice. What is the client going for you that's taken them to be brave enough to come and sit in front of you? We have centres all over England and Wales, all networked together. We have very small ones that maybe have one or two volunteers to a number of larger centres where they've got maybe full-time staff. It's all driven by a church or a community group saying there's people that are struggling with debt. We think we can do something to help. 
the whole ethos of community money advice centres is about the whole person, giving them the tools to actually put their lives back together, but also to get out of debt and stay out of debt. Well, there'll be more to come on that, but uh, if you're interested, talk to me, talk to Liz, talk to Dawn, and uh, we'll, we'd be delighted to continue that conversation. Let us pray. Great God of the whole earth, you call us to be your body, and so today, as your body gathered in this place, we offer our whole selves to your service. May we be knit together by your spirit so that our common life reflects your calling and your will. Direct our thoughts, words and deeds in way that make real in this world the eternal truth of your coming kingdom. Teach our eyes to see the world as you see it rather than as the world wants to be seen. May we learn to see through the insidious propaganda that so readily dominates human relationships from the interpersonal to the international. May we learn that the other is also a child of God, as deeply loved and valued as we are ourselves. From the abstract refugee, migrant, and asylum seeker to the person we find most difficult in our day-to-day -day lives, may we discover you in those whom we fear. And so we pray for those who help us to see. We pray for journalists, for the opinion formers, for politicians, and for bloggers. We thank you for fearless truth-telling. And we pray for integrity for all those who show others what to believe. We thank you for the freedom of speech that we enjoy in this country. And we ask for your wisdom as we discern where we should direct our own eyes. May we look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. And as we have seen, so we must do. Teach us, living Lord, where we should take our stand. May we be released from the compulsion to aggressively defend our own territory, and instead may we learn what it means to stand on justice and righteousness and truth. As the firm ground of our certainties shifts beneath us, may we learn how to walk new paths of collaboration and cooperation. So we pray for our traditional enemies, for those who we instinctively stand against. And we ask that in the new world of your spirit, enemies may become friends reaching out across borders previously uncrossed. And so we pray for Israel and Palestine, and for Syria and Iraq, and for the countries of Europe. May peace and justice and righteousness prevail. We pray also for those who take their stand on issues of moral or theological certainty and in so doing exclude others from your love. 
Grant us again a vision of your universal kingdom, which recognizes no divisions and transcends all borders. And as we negotiate the changing territory of the world, we pray that you will direct our actions. May the works of our hands be acceptable in your sight. May we build friendships and not enmities. May we reach out in love and acceptance to those whom others would push away. May we become your body, extending a welcome to all in your name, bringing food to the hungry, clothing to the naked, and healing to the sick. May our hands be generous in your service, releasing our time, talents, and money to the service of your kingdom. So we pray for all those with whom we partner as we reach out to the vulnerable and hurting of this world. We commit to your care and guidance our relationships with BMS World Mission, Christian Aid, the Amos Trust, who extend our reach around the globe, and we pray also more locally for the work of London citizens, the Simon community, the C4WS Night Shelter, and the Green Light Team. Great God of us all, teach us to live in love, to stand in hope, and to act in justice. For the sake of your kingdom. Amen.